Dr. Sarah Burke is a research fellow with the National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health at the Australian National University. Born and raised in Canberra, Sarah is an Aboriginal woman. She completed her undergraduate studies at ANU in biological anthropology and psychology before being awarded a John Monash scholarship in 2013, where she studied at Oxford University for a Master's of Philosophy in Medical Anthropology. That was topped up by a Roberta Sykes scholarship where she completed her doctorate, which she finished last year. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Sarah Burke to the podcast. Sarah, a very warm welcome to you. Thank you very much. Now, I understand you're in North Wales at the moment. What are you doing there? Uh, so it's really just more of a little bit of a break from the rat race, essentially. I was living in Oxford uh, for my studies, but, yes. um, or, you know, the pandemic hit us all and then it became very repetitive there. So I thought, why not have a bit of a sea change and move to North Wales for six months? I've never been to Wales. What's Wales like? Oh, it's beautiful. Like here, especially, um, sort of the natural environment's very green. There's hills and mountains. My room at the moment in my office looks over a bit of the river and some uh, green pastures and mountains in the distance. So it's it's pretty idyllic. Is it starting to get cold? Oh, yeah, definitely. Autumn has begun. <laughs> um, yeah. But surprisingly, still a little bit of sunshine. Uh, so we always welcome any day of sunshine here in the UK. <laughs> what was um tell me what was lockdown like uh for you in the UK yeah so for us it began I think it was March 2020 yes um yeah. was the beginning of our first lockdown and it was I guess it was the same sort of experience that you guys have had in Australia in terms of not really knowing what's happening sort of the rules seem to be changing every few days. Um, but once things settled down a bit, you sort of got into a bit of a rhythm. And I, I knew how important it was that I got out each day for my one hour of exercise. So I made sure to do that walking or running or just sort of mm. meandering around in, in the green <laughs> doing spaces. Something. Yeah, doing something because, you know, every day can feel the same during a lockdown. You get a sort of distorted sense of time. Um, during that period. But uh, as soon as the restrictions started to ease up, that uh, definitely helped. And now uh, with the UK certainly opening up, um, much more so than in Australia, certainly in, in some states, how has that been? Yeah, so at the moment, sort of domestic life is fairly normal. Um, you still wear masks um, when you go to the supermarket or when you're initially going into a cafe or something, but when you sit down, you take them off. Um, and apart from that, there aren't too many restrictions on our movement at the moment. I haven't been on any international holidays, but I know people who have. Uh, mm. But I am planning a driving holiday to Scotland uh, in a couple of weeks' time. So uh, I think that'll be our first sort of major holiday since the start of lockdown way back when. Um, when was the last time you were, when was the last time you were back in Australia? Ah, uh, so it was almost three years ago. Oh, are yeah. you homesick? I never, never anticipated it would be that long. Oh, definitely, definitely. 
Um, but I am going to be uh, returning home in November, so I'm very much. Oh, there you go. That. Well, fingers fingers crossed you can get on a plane. Yeah, fingers crossed they don't cancel my flights and my visa mm. runs out. But uh, I think, yeah, we'll see. Uh, I know my university has got my back in terms of if I need to buy a business class ticket there at the moment or something. Um, <laughs> yeah, you'll be, you'll be, you know, 30, 40 grand lighter in the pocket. You go, hey, I'm home. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So you're an expert in medical anthropology. Can you explain what this is all about, please? Yeah, so anthropology is just essentially the study of society and cultures uh, and medical anthropology just sort of treats healthcare and health in general and what people think about health as a kind of culture. Um, so it's, it's very broad. It could be looking at p- particular experiences of cancer, or it could be looking at how doctors, officers, GPs, how they function, uh, or it could be looking at, you know, the sort of food people keep in their fridges uh, and how that relates to their beliefs about health and well-being. So it's very, very broad as a as a topic. Have you looked into uh, the population's reluctance or acceptance into taking new vaccines, for example? <laughs> I've I've not looked into this specifically, but because of my um, uh, knowledge in Aboriginal yes. Torres Strait Islander health and well-being and history, I I know why um, people. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people can be reluctant. When the coronavirus, um, COVID-19, first emerged, did you, I bet you would have had uh, more than a passing interest in how that was going to play out. And um, I'd be keen on your perspective on, and your observations on um, working through a, a global pandemic. It has been really interesting to observe how people in the community have responded Uh, to the unique situation that we're all in. Um, Mm. So I know we were living in like a small cul-de-sac in Oxford and during the pandemic was the first time we really got to know our neighbours because we'd sort of sit out on our, you know, camp chairs (laughs) on each of our little uh, pathways, socially distanced and have little chats um, about things and, you know, a glass of wine or gmt or whatever your preference was uh so it was kind of in that sense brought us closer to the people around us um given that you know there was so distant from family and friends Hmm. And, and what was it that first made you become interested in the studies of anthropology um so it was partly something i fell into and partly related to sort of my love of archaeology Actually, I so when I started out at ANU, I was doing a double degree. So one was a Bachelor of Science in Psychology, which was just, you start out with a bit of biology, but mostly just psychology courses. And then Mm -hmm. the Bachelor of Arts degree was a mix, for me, a mix of uh, anthropology and archaeology courses. Um, And, I mean, archaeology studies artifacts of the past and makes informed speculations about what life was like back then and I sort of feel like anthropology is a little bit about is a little bit like archaeology mm. except the people are around and you can ask them what life is like so yep. but you're still using those sorts of 
material objects and history to inform your understanding of how societies and cultures and groups of people work. Yeah, okay. And did, did you start developing that passion from a, from a young age? You started getting interested in that sort of thing? Yeah, I think I was always um, sort of a very observant kid, uh, a little bit of an introvert. And I think that mm. um, helps because you tend to become the listener in group situations. Um, but then I was also watching a lot of documentaries about you know, ancient Egypt or other cultures and things. And then, of course, coming from um, a really diverse cultural background myself, uh, including yes. my Aboriginal heritage, it's sort of, I think you appreciate uh, that c- cultural differences are a strength. Um, and you really become very interested in learning more about the diversity of people. So when um, you applied for the John Monash scholarship, um, did you have any sense that you actually might might get it? Definitely not. I mean, I was very hopeful. <laughs> of course. Um, very hopeful that I would get. I, I'd sort of, I was used to the scholarship application process and interviews yes. because that's that's sort of how I funded um, myself during my undergraduate studies. Uh, and I sort of had a, you know, I'd also applied for the Rhodes Scholarship and um, a Charlie Perkins Scholarship. So I, mm-hmm. I sort of was familiar with the process, but I didn't expect I'd get it. And in fact, I didn't get it initially. Um, through the first round because I think I was the, the next runner-up for the number of scholarships they had at the time. Right, yes. Um, but then I think it was <clears throat> a week later or so I got a call saying, oh, can you come uh, to a meeting in Sydney? Um, and there they were like, well, we found some uh, a little bit of extra funding. Oh. oh well, well, first I had to sort of reiterate um, how I would use the scholarship and how uh, it was instrumental to what I wanted to do, which was completely true. Um, And then they said, well, we would like to offer you a John Monash scholarship. And it was just blew my mind. Amazing. um, That I I got it. So did you know that um, where you wanted to study, I'm presuming that's that's obviously part of the process, but did did you weigh up a few different universities? Yeah, so I was um, I was fortunate to be involved with uh, the Aurora Education Foundation, which helps uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander high achieving students to go on a sort of university tour internationally to look at. Um, for me, it was Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, NYU, and Columbia, mm. um, and I think they also do. It's not a, not a bad um, list. I know, yeah, I think they also do Berkeley and Stanford nowadays uh, in normal (laughs) times. But that was a fantastic opportunity because for me, I I feel like a lot of the way I live my life is around like how I feel about things and feel about the environment around me. And so having the opportunity to visit Oxford before actually applying and attending some classes and meeting with professors uh, was you know, amazing because I could picture myself there um, and talk about it in my application. So I think that really helped me build my confidence in terms of, well, I know I could 
belong here and I would fit in because that's, you know, the imposter syndrome is one of the biggest things that people, I think, at Oxford and Cambridge especially and other universities, they, they feel that a lot because, you know, you it becomes very real uh, thing that you're definitely not the smartest person in the room. I'm not <laughs> sure I would want to be, um, but that's not necessarily the experience you get um, in Australia. So I think it's, I think it was a really uh, wonderful experience. And I was sort of weighing up Oxford and Cambridge uh, and also Edinburgh um, mm. for a different sort of course. Yeah. And so what was, um, what was it like studying there? Give us, give us a flavour of um, your time at Oxford. Yeah, I think during the Masters especially, um, it was super exciting. It was actually when I went over in 2013, it was the first time I'd ever uh, lived outside of Canberra and lived away from my family. And mm -hmm. um, it was one of the big things when you're, you're going through these scholarship interviews for international study and they're like, well, how are you going to handle living away from home? <laughs> Um, yeah, don't, don't those, really know. I've never done it yeah, before. Exactly, exactly. Well, you know, oh, I keep in touch. Blah, blah, blah. I mm. adapted really well. I don't think I missed my family at all for the first six months. <laughs> I don't think they'd mind me saying that. Um, yeah, it'd be but, nice to stay in touch once in a while. <laughs> That's yeah, <it's> cool. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it was, uh, it was because there was so much going on and so much to see and do. There were you know, classical music concerts or music gigs or theatre or just, you know, um, book events in the local bookshop with internationally renowned authors. You know, there were things going on at the um, Oxford Union uh, where they always invite international speakers to come and talk about whatever their field is. And it was just an incredible environment it. for meeting people. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I loved it. Um, I just met so many people from all over the world, from so many different backgrounds, and it was just a, a really rich experience, especially in that first six months. Um, and as an introvert, I thought I would struggle a bit more, but luckily um, Oxford's full of introverts and we all sort of got along in our awkwardness. So <laughs> I think, yeah, I had a really What does that time. look like? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you, usually there's some uh, wine involved or beer yes. um, to help to help things on, along a little bit, mm. yeah. Mm. Um, but then also there are lots of fun activities. So I know um, the middle common room, so the graduate common room at my college, Keeble, for my masters. They did a pumpkin carving evening around Halloween, um, and that was a, a fun thing, <laughs> alcohol free. And there was also a uh, a friend of mine in the MCR was Welsh. So they did a Welsh Kaylee on St. David's Day. And um, so there were lots of different things to do apart from, you know, fancy dinners in a hall where you'd, you'd be paying about $10 for a three course dinner with alcohol. Nice. So it was, yeah. Like yeah, it. yeah. It was That's very hard to take. unique experience. Yeah. And so once you finished your master's, um, I think, you, I think we said 2015, what happened then? Where did you go from there? Yeah, so I actually came back to Australia for a bit uh, and I was working as a tutor at ANU for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander undergrads. Okay. And I was also beginning a collaboration 
with um, what would become the Maya Kawai study, which is the focus of my doctoral research. Uh, and I was working with them on a research paper just to sort of inform what they were doing at the time. And then I started my uh, doctorate studies in 2016 and came back over to, to Oxford to take that up. Right. And now you're in, you're in Wales preparing at some point, fingers crossed, to go back to Australia. Yep. And that, and that will be to work. Um, you're working at ANU. So what, what, are, you, what are you doing there? Yes. Yeah, so my, um, my research is around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health and well-being. Okay. And I'm working um, in their Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health unit, uh, soon to be a centre, um, with people that I also worked with during my doctorate. So it, it's kind of nice, even though I'm remote, I do sort of know my colleagues or some of my colleagues at the moment. Um, and basically, I'm working around establishing the research field of cultural determinants of health. So mm -hmm. people might have heard of social determinants of health, like education or where you, where you live or your income, um, whereas cultural determinants of health, <clears throat> there's a very specific sort of narrative building around that in Australia, um, where it's looking at Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and the strength that they bring to people, uh, not only for their mental health, but physical health as well. So at the moment, I'm... Uh, doing research and writing papers around the importance of culture for health and well-being of Indigenous peoples. But I'm planning to do a major research project in the next few years that will involve talking to people in Canberra and elsewhere about the sorts of things that they do or mindsets uh, that help them stay well. Because okay. I think there's, um, there's a lot of negative news stories about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health in Australia, not unjustified, but mm. um, often the good news story gets lost amongst those negative stories. And there is certainly a good news story to tell. And that's what I would like my research to focus on. Well, what is that good story? Here's your, here's your chance to, to get that good news out there. What would, you, what would you like to see the media covering? Yeah, so I would like uh, the media... Uh, and other researchers to focus uh, more on how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities are coming together and really supporting each other and uh, looking at things like cultural revival and language revival, which is really experiencing a surge in Australia and in other uh, Indigenous communities around the world, and talking about how we are, we're not just because you live an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander person who lives in the city doesn't mean you're disconnected from your culture. Mm. Um, culture takes a lot of different forms and just because it's not, you know, what people may have seen when they came off that first boat um, to Australia, it's, it's still vibrant and strong um, and has a lot of lessons for, I think, everybody else in Australia as well. So on that, uh, how do you think the work you're doing, your research, can change the way health studies are conducted in the future, say, in Australia? Yeah, so I think the main thing um, that came through very strongly in my doctoral research was 
the importance of having Indigenous people in charge of Indigenous research, mm -hmm. because it really changes the whole framing of the work and, and what it means to people who participate in it. Uh, and that was, it was not something that I particularly intended to focus on when I began my research, but it just came out so strongly from the people I was talking to. And of course, the, the Maya Kauai study, which is what I focus on for my doctoral research, it's the first large scale cohort study in Australia to um, have Aboriginal, it's Aboriginal owned, led and governed. Um, and so is the data that it produces. So I think there was a really strong message there that when Indigenous people have ownership over research, not only does the research become mm. more relevant uh, and more accurately represents Indigenous people's lives, it's also better research um, because it's done in a way which is culturally appropriate and meaningful to communities. And I think this. I think uh, what I observed was a lot more emphasis on how the research and the data that they produce could directly benefit communities and not just research for research's sake. So I know that um, that the study you've um, conducted, your research is focused on measuring culture. How, how do you do that? How do you measure culture? Yeah, so uh, as an anthropologist, or at least as a student in anthropology, this sort of idea of measuring culture was, you know, unthinkable. Uh, anthropology um, and other social sciences, I think, tend to look at culture as something which is very intangible and dynamic. And if you measure it, then it um, it essentializes culture and cultures. You know, constantly changing. So how could you say it's one thing when it might be another thing in 10 years or 50 years or 100 years time? Um, so when, when the study's aim was to measure culture, it isn't to say that this is the be all and end all of culture. You know, if it isn't measured in our survey, it doesn't count as culture. It was more about touching on those really key aspects of what it means to be an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person in Australia today um, and how that connects with your identity and your cultural heritage and your practices today. Uh, so I think it's, it's, it's trying to be representative of what culture means to people, but it's not trying to say, uh, you know, this is what culture is uh, and nothing mm. else counts. It's more about finally trying to account for what really matters to Indigenous people and what really does impact our health and well-being, which is, of course, our connection to our people and our land. I'm mindful of not wanting to open a, a political can of worms uh, with this question, but there's a big debate <laughs> in Australia every year about Australia Day, particularly being January 26. Um, so many column inches, news headlines. Do you have a particular view on that topic? Yeah, so you know, actually, um, January 26th is my grandfather's birthday. Really? Yeah, so it's something that I, I think of maybe as a date for that, more so than Australia Day. Um, and in terms of the debate, I don't mind saying that I disagree with the date. I think that there are plenty of other better dates that could be chosen. But I think the main um, problem is that there's a lack of recognition of the importance of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people 
to the nation's sort of economy, education, culture and things. So I think that's um, the debate that's going on is reflective of a much wider lack of recognition of the value of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and cultures to the Australian story. Um, and I'm, I'm a pacifist. I'm someone who likes everybody to be happy. Mm -hmm. And I think if you've got a huge section of the, well, I, I mean, it, it is a minority, but it's also other Australians as well, um, saying that this, this date is offensive, it's survival day, it's invasion day. Um, I think, you know, if, if everybody can't have a good time, then what's the point? You know, you're only celebrating a group of um, one section of the population's contribution to Australia and I think it should be more inclusive. What about um, politics in general and on Aboriginal and Indigenous issues? Do you have a sense of um, how we're going as a nation when it comes to doing things well or otherwise? Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, I, I'd be the millionth person in line to say, you know, Australia hasn't done very well um, up to this point. And absolutely, there's always room for improvement. But I have noticed uh, a small shift in the last few years just through my research where mm -hmm. um, there is a stronger Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to government um, and a recognition, at least, you know, on the websites and through rhetoric that the contribution of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is the key to improving our health and well-being and social outcomes. Um, but I think that sort of rhetoric has existed before. Um, and of course, it's all about follow through uh, when it comes to political matters. So I think there's definitely hope and I think there is momentum building. But I think it is, you know, the buck stops with the government if they're not willing to incorporate in a meaningful, powerful way Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people into the policy development process, then, you know, it's it's doomed to fail before it begins. So I think um, that more could be done and more should be done, but, um, you know, wh whether it happens is up to them. Very well said. Sarah Burke, it's been wonderful catching up with you uh, today from Wales. Uh, and fingers crossed you get on that plane back to Australia in November. Uh, we will be following your career with much interest. So thank you for joining us on the Scholars Podcast today and all the very best in the future. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it.